0: Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 1, we get to start a brand new book tonight. It's kind of a fun, a good night to be here. Um, we are, it, it says in verse 1, Now it came to pass after the death of Saul that when David had returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites, and David had stayed two days in Ziklag. So here's the context of this. Um, 2 Samuel was and is part 2 of Samuel. There's a reason they call it 1 Samuel, Second Samuel. It used to be the same book. And right around the time when they wrote the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament, when they wrote the Greek version, they split it into two books. So from there forth, we have 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel. That happened in about 170 BC. Largely, the reason they probably did this is because the scrolls got so big that they got to be hard to carry, right? So when you're writing on papyrus, it's a lot thicker than you know our nice, tidy, thin sheets of paper. Um, So there isn't really a particular um, shift from 1 Samuel to 2 Samuel. Other than this, uh, some people believe that where they split the book was really intentional. And where they split the book was 1 Samuel is the ministry of Samuel, but clearly he's dead, so he didn't compose 2 Samuel or the last parts of 1 Samuel. So it is Samuel and those he trained that were the authors or composers of this book. It was a team of these priests that would have wrote this book. And Tradition holds that. Nobody really challenges that. Um, authorship, that there was a group of people. So the writing style from sec- 1 to Samuel to 2 Samuel stays the same in both books. Um, likely the authors of this part that we're reading would have been Gad or Nathan. There is a record that says Gad was the prophet that came to uh, David at this stage. So it could have been Samuel handed off these, these scrolls to Gad, who then gave them to Nathan later on. Um, But that tradition would have been carried out by the priesthood. Um, We're going to cover about a 40-year period in 2 Samuel. So those 40 years are the kingship of David. Really, 1 Samuel is the kingship of Saul, and 2 Samuel is the kingship of David. And you get these versions of both of these, of how Israel came into being as a nation with a king. Um, So we start off with this, this, after the death of Saul... Um, we see this contrast in how people deal with things. David has returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites, uh, really avenging the fact that they raided their town, they kidnapped their wives and children and their livestock, and David comes back from that. This is a contrast to Saul. Saul. When things got tough for Saul, he ignores the Lord's commands, he lies about it, he calcifies in it, and then he goes and he consults a necromancer. That's the general downside of Saul. David, when pressed to it, strengthens himself in the Lord, goes back to the priests of God, not necromancers. He starts living and obeying the laws of God and treating a stranger uh, appropriately with the Egyptian. Um, And we see this kind of rise of of David. And there's no coincidence in the writers contrasting the two kings. So at this point, we're kind of in flux because there's no king in Israel. It's an empty seat. Um, so Saul if he's an image of the flesh rules for himself and we see that backsliding but we also see David as an image of the spirit or being led by the spirit and doing things God's way so we're going to kind of see that happen so verse one Saul and the three sons are dead on Mount Gamboa um, at the end of first Samuel and now it, this is where we're coming back so it's almost like we kind of are returning to this story from David's side of it, because the last chapter of the last book, we saw the demise of Saul and his sons. So then we pick up here, and we're back with David. Verse 2, On the third day, behold, it happened that a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes f- torn and dust on his head. So it was, when he came to David, that he fell to the ground and prostrate, prostrated, prostrated himself, which means to lay flat on the ground. I had to look that one up. Another reference to the New Kingdom, we see we keep seeing this reference to on the third day. Notice that he stayed two days in Ziklag, and then on the third day, behold. They could have then said this was five days, but they don't say that. They split it up because the writer wants to put in the phrase on the third day, which I just think is really unique, that that becomes kind of a thing that we see throughout the Old Testament is something happens on the third day. And they even go out of their way to make that happen, as in these verses, So, behold, it happened that a man uh, from Saul's camp... Now, these are important details. If he's from Saul's camp, what nationality should he be? Israeli. Israeli. So, there's some things that we got to... Remember with the the, uh, necromancer, there was a lot of stuff where you had to tune in carefully to hear the lies? This guy's going to be lying through his teeth. And so, we're going to see... A, a, kind of almost a, an example where we see something with Saul and we see something that kind of mirrors it with David. So David's going to be dealing with somebody who's not quite telling him the truth uh, and we'll see how David handles that. So a man comes, it doesn't record his name. Verse 5, that name will be changed to a young man. So the Hebrew word changes between verse 2 and verse 5. Why does the word change? Because we learn more about this person's character. And there's something that kind of, or we get a little more detail as we go. The clothes being torn and the dust are both images of mourning. A Jewish reader would have seen that as that somebody has died and they're mourning the death. Falling to the ground would have meant that this person is treating David as their king. So he's coming in, prostrating himself before David as though David is his lord or his king. So and David says to him, verse 3, where have you come from? So he says to him, I've escaped from the camp of Israel. And then David said to him, oh, how did the matter go? Please tell me. So David instantly asks for more detail, like why, what's, what's happening. And remember, he, he didn't have YouTube or NBC or anything like that. He had to get his news through people. So if he escaped from Israel, does that mean he escaped from the Amalekites? Or he, is he an escaped slave that got away from being a slave to the Israelites who died in battle? Does that make sense? So there's some questions there. And so when we see Naar being used in verse 5 and in verse 8, we see that he's an Amalekite. He's not an Israelite. He was likely somebody that the Israelites had taken captive. So when they're beaten in battle, he actually escapes. And, then he, and he answered, the people have fled from battle. Many of the people are fallen and dead. And Jonathan and Saul, his, his son, are, are dead also. It doesn't mention the other two sons. So David said to the young man, who told him? How do you know that Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead? So, again, like, he doesn't just take the person's word for it. He he keeps asking, you see how David's kind of trying to flush out more details? Well, how do you know that? What happened? Tell me more. So, David asking for details shows us a very different personality than Saul. We never saw Saul do this. But David wants, before he makes decisions or judgments, he wants as much information as he can get. Were you there? Is there something wrong? The fact that it switches over to Na'ar, and it says it three times in this passage, we should note that detail being used. Uh, na'ar there is, is definitely a, a detail that gets added here. So, and then he said to the young man, Na'ar, uh, which could be another word for servant. So it doesn't just mean like a, a younger person. It could mean somebody who's a servant or, or underneath someone else. As I happened by chance to be on Mount Gilboa there was Saul, so if, okay, this is, again, when we're dealing with liars, like, it's hard to just read it, because there's so much weaved in there, he just said he came from the camp of Israel, right, and now he says, as it happened by chance to be on Mount Gilboa, what, wait, why are you there by chance, are you with the camp, or are you not with the camp, because they were camped on Gilboa, so there's no, the chance in there is just an odd word to use, um, As as I happened by chance to be on Mount Gilboa, there was Saul, leaning on his spear. And indeed, the chariots and the horsemen followed hard after him. Now when he looked down, looked behind him, he saw me and called to me. And I answered, here I am. And he said to me, who are you? So I answered him, I'm an Amalekite. And he said to me again, please stand over me and kill me, for anguish has come upon me, but my life still remains in me. So I stood over him and I killed him or stood over him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not not live after he'd fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the bracelet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. So the Bible's always referred to a crown as a symbol of kingship. The band on the arm or a torque would have been just a piece of jewelry unique to the king. In Jewish culture, that really didn't have much to do with kingship. But for an Amalekite, it would have been a recognizable object that came from Saul that they would have seen. So, okay, the man is lying, so I don't want to unpack that too much. Uh, But I just, you know, if you go back to 1 Samuel, just flip back a page, 31, you get a very different account of what happens here. David doesn't have 1 Samuel 31 in front of him. He doesn't have that account. So as the priests of Saul eventually made their way to meet up with the priests of David, they could compare stories and go, hey, that's not what we thought happened, and they could compare notes and do that, but um, I think it's interesting that the author just gives us two different stories from the same book. Some people look at that and say, well, this is a huge mistake in the Bible, like they, they got inaccuracies, don't you see that? So I think it's important for us to understand that this person's being titled a young man, which means they're less reliable, they don't have responsibilities, and clearly this person has kind of an agenda. And we also notice how David keeps asking for more and more detail. And those details don't st- seem to add up very much. So real quickly, in 1 Samuel 31, Saul, uh, Saul dies by a sword, but here he's leaning on his spear. It is, so, And even in this person's story, um, Saul is, is being chased by chariots and horsemen, but he's caught leaning on a spear. So what is it? Is he running or is he leaning? Which of those, like, something doesn't add up. So they followed hard after. So if he's on Mount Gilboa, do chariots go up mountains? Like, wait a second, where are you on the battlefield? Because chariots are flat land tools. So there's things here that a warrior would understand. This is like somebody trying to talk about code when they don't write code. And somebody who does write code would hear that and go, you don't write code, do you? So when he's coming to David with these details, for for a warrior like David, these details wouldn't add up. He'd pick some of these things up really quickly. So David doesn't have to, you know, figure this out on his own. He can kind of see what's going on. And David knew Saul's character. He knew that Saul, back in 1 Samuel 31, 4, Saul asks his armor bearer to kill him because he doesn't want the uncircumcised to kill him. Anything is better than being killed by an uncircumcised person. So the Amalekite saying, he came up and asked me to kill him. I think David would recognize that's totally against Saul's character. Saul would do anything but what you just described. That doesn't sound like Saul. But somehow he's got this crown and this bracelet. So verse 9, for anguish has come. The word anguish there in the Hebrew is not what we would think it is in the English. In the Hebrew, the word for anguish there is, it entails a cramping. Like Saul had been running for miles and he was cramped the first Samuel account says he was shot with arrows that were mortal. So it's not just that he's cramped up and can't run anymore, right? And and so this situation, it could be that he fell on his sword and he was half dead, but then you try to get these two stories to mesh and they just don't mesh. Something doesn't fit between them. So verse 10, I took the crown and bracelet. So those two things Clearly, he has them in his hands. You've got to kind of take them. Somehow or another, which we're not told, this person got their hands on Saul's crown and Saul's bracelet, and he's bringing it to, to David. He's probably thinking to himself, if he stole them, if he happened to run across Saul, who knows how this whole thing came about. But if that happened, he probably is thinking to himself, if I bring these things to David, David's going to reward me. And, and, and I'm going to be, David will think I'm a really nice guy. And David does have non-Israelites as part of his crew of people that are with him right now. So, plus, this person's thinking that Saul was David's enemy, and he's assuming that David was Saul's enemy. And we know from Sir Samuel that it didn't work like that. That he's actually, David's not going to be happy about what he hears here. So, regardless of what the truth is, when he says, I stood over him and killed him, there's no reason to self-condemn yourself when you go into a trial. So when you go before a king and you admit that you just committed murder, that's not going to work well for you in a courtroom. They might be more lenient with the punishment, but in Israeli law, there is a punishment for murder, and, and, and it is execution. Um, so he spoke it. He self-condemns himself. He thinks that that is going to get him you know, rewards with David, but what he just did is he just admitted to murder. And not only that, he admitted to murdering the anointed one. So therefore, that's the therefore in verse 11, David took hold of his own clothes and tore them. Again, that's a sign of mourning. Somebody's died. And so did all the men who were with him, which is huge. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan, his son, and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they'd fallen by the sword. Israel is over. It's done. It's done. This isn't a celebration. This is absolute mourning. You would think that if David thought he was someday going to be king, that he was the anointed one, that he's been living with that knowledge since he was a kid, you'd think he'd be super excited right now. He just got the crown handed to him, what God promised him when he was a kid. Notice in these verses that David never takes the crown because this isn't the way to get the crown. I think this is important in all of our ministries when we go out to do ministry. God may have put something on your heart that you're called to do this or you're called to do that, but there's a right way to do this or that. And if you try to leapfrog that, and I think sometimes the enemy, the Amalekite, will get you at your weakest when they, when they give you promotion or pride or opportunity. And those things can be a, as much of a snare as sin. So David, I think, understands that what's going on here. He never grabs the crown, chooses the exact opposite. All of his men did too. It tells you something about the men that are following David. They're not, they're with him at this point. He's back to following the Lord. And then David, verse 13, said to the young man, Nassau, who, who told him, where are you from? That's an interesting question, isn't it? Why would David ask where he's from? And he answered, I'm the son of an alien and a Malachite. So Thinking that he's ingratiated himself to David, clearly David hasn't revealed his cards yet and what he's going to do. And if you read ahead, you can see what he's about to do to this guy. Uh, Ingratiating himself to David, and and he's noting that he's an Amalekite, and he comes from somebody else's place. Maybe he's thinking, well, David's an Israelite living in um, Ziklag, He's an alien in Philistine territory, so maybe David would understand that I'm an alien living in Israeli territory, and, and maybe that's what he's doing. Likely, David at this point has passed judgment. He's admitted to murder. That has to be dealt with. So when he's determining where are you from, I think what he's asking that for is there's a slightly different law for an Israelite committing murder than there is for an alien that commits murder. So there are different rules. And I think David is trying to, again, carry out God's law here. And he wants to know how to deal with the person. Are you an Israelite? Because as an Israelite, he should know better. But as an Amalekite, he doesn't know better. So David said to him, how, how was it that you were not afraid to put forth your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Why weren't you scared of doing this? You seem to be proud of what you did. Why weren't you scared of this? And then David, and we don't get an answer from the young man. At all, like he just, it's almost like a rhetorical question. Why weren't you scared to do this? And then David called one of the young men and said, go near and execute him. And he struck him so that he died. This is actually the merciful death. It's quick and it's fast and you didn't even know it was coming three minutes ago, right? So it's just done, it's executed. So David said to him, <laughs> um, it's interesting, David says this after the guy has died. So the guy is dead. So is he talking to him anymore or is he talking to the Israelites in the room that are seeing this happen. And he says to him, your blood is on your own head for from your own mouth has testified against you saying I have killed the Lord's anointed. So he passes a formal judgment as this happens and says your blood's on your own head. I don't need to figure out all your lies because you admitted to killing Saul and you were proud of it. There's no remorse there. It wasn't accidental and it wasn't manslaughter. So according to Deuteronomy, there's an execution that needs to happen and it's executed and it happens quickly. I think David has somebody else do it because another piece of the law which I think David's sticking to to the letter here is you're never supposed to kill in anger. And David's probably furious right now with this guy. So to to for him to go and do the execution would be to do something in, in probably with a pretty stirred up spirit. So he's saying he commands this to be done, it's done immediately. Um and, and says why it was done, probably so the people around him could understand. You'd think some of the other Israelites too would be like, David, the crown just got handed to you. But David's thing is, you don't take a crown, people give you a crown. He can't take the kingship of Israel. Israel has to give it to him. And it doesn't go the other way. I think in the world, a lot of times, leadership is taken, but in God's kingdom, leadership is given. And you give people a following. So David never laid a hand on Saul, Uh, He taught his men to never lay a hand on Saul. And David doesn't really get into it any further because this guy admits that's the end of the court case. he's He's not even trying to claim he didn't do it. So no celebration. There's no hanging this guy on the wall like the Philistines did with Saul. There's just a quick, clean execution. It happens immediately. That's what a swift and speedy trial looks like. Verse 16, he talks about his blood, that your blood phrase at the beginning of 16. Um, he's, he's actually making direct reference to the law where it talks about if there is a murder, then you need to determine on whose head the blood belongs, who's responsible for it. So when David says this, he's assigning that responsibility to the person who just got killed. Um, then David inter- lamented with lamentation. Again, the, the execution of this person was civic. It wasn't necessarily in, in a rage or anything like that. Then David lamented. His, his emotion is one of sadness and mourning. With this lamentation over Saul and over Jonathan, his son, and he told them to teach the children of Judah the song of the bow. It almost sounds like a Tales thing. The song of the Cebu. Indeed, it is written in the book of Jasher. Okay, oh, stop. The book of Jasher? Where is that? Uh, the book of Jasher, you may, not, you may notice in your table of contents, is not in your Bible. But here's a reference to another book that's not in the Bible. Again, people take something like this and blow it way out of proportion. Whoa, that's a book that's... Well, like, okay, there is a book of Jasher. There's even a version that was written in 1700, if you want to read that one. That one's a little fluffy. Um, but there is a book of Jasher that goes pretty far back into history. The problem is they can't identify who wrote it and who, and who procured it as accurate through the ages. Therefore, it's not in our Bibles. There are lots of books from the ancient world that didn't make it into our Bible. Also, that doesn't preclude people writing in the Bible to reference books that were contemporary books back in their age. Just because we can't validate that that's a book that belongs here is actually supporting the accuracy of the Bible, not the other way around, at least in my opinion. But still, when I get to heaven, I'm heading to the library, and I'm going to find some of these books because these are really like I want to know what's in the book. Book of Jasher got mentioned back in Joshua ten thirteen also, uh, so this would have been a kind of a book that's known back then. Um, and but that doesn't again just because it's mentioned in the Bible doesn't mean it gets included because to be included you have to have the authorship uh, at least secured, or we know who the author is. And that the dating of that goes right back to the period when it was written. And we can track that dating all the way back with versions uh, or with other references. So um, it's not there. Um, In the Apocrypha, if you really want to pick up an Apocrypha version, there is a book of Jasher that's in there. That's not the one from 1700. They have the older version of the text in there if you want to read it. But there's some problems with the book of Jasher. And again, that's, I think, divinely when God has assembled the books into the Bible, there's some books that didn't make the cut, and there's a reason for that. Um, Anyways, um, when I get to heaven, I'm going to read the book of Jasher. If you guys want to hang out and do a book club, uh, we will will have books of the Bible or books that we know are accurate that are there. Here's the thing with the song of the bow. Uh, In the Hebrew, the song of is not actually there. So teach the children of Judah the bow. So the name of the song was the bow, And they just add the song of the bow to help us understand what it was. Uh, But here's the song of the bow. I think I'm just going to read the whole thing and then we'll kind of go back through it because it's a song, it's a poetic piece. Um, I'm not a poetic reader, but I'll do my darndest. Uh, Verse 19 The beauty of Israel is slain on your high places. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath, proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice. Lest the daughters of the uncircumcised triumph, O mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain on you, nor the fields of offerings, for the shield of the mighty is cast away from there. The shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. From the blood of the stain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back, and the sword of Saul did not return empty. Saul and Jonathan were beloved and pleasant in their lives. And in their death they were not divided, they were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. O daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you in scarlet with luxury, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of battle. Jonathan was slain in your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. You've been very pleasant to me. Your love was to me was wonderful, surpassing the love of women." how the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war have perished. So that's the song of the bow. David didn't hate Saul. I I, I think that's why this is in here. We have to know this about David. He had this enemy that was violently opposing him and chasing him and trying to kill him. And David's heart was after God's own heart. And he just didn't have hatred for Saul in his heart. If anything, he feels sorry for him. A few little details about the young man that came and told the story that I, I think we can spot in the song, which is why I, you can see David knew what he was doing. David knew that Saul was a guy who threw his spear. So if he's being hunted by chariots, would he have leaned on his spear or would he have chucked that thing at the nearest chariot, right? So when we notice that Saul isn't carrying a spear in the Song of the Bow. He has a sword that doesn't, because the sword is the thing you don't throw. You keep it with you. Um, the other little detail that's in here is... Uh, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised triumph. He knows Saul's attitude towards the uncircumcised. So he kind of works that in here. Um, Anyways, just a, I won't spend too much time on that guy. We have access here to what a man of God looks like when he's mourning. We get this rare kind of inset psalm inside the books of history because this is a book they did teach to the children. It would have been a big deal. But we know that he loves God. Uh, Psalm 73 Uh, Or, I'm sorry, there's 73 psalms that David writes. This is a guy who writes songs. And it's amazing that we can look back in history and not only hear the history of what happens, but we get to see the heart of the characters on which it's happening. That's such a rare thing in the the body of literature from the ancient world that we have. Um, David's psalms that he writes define his kingship. So 23 of the psalms are written by the sons of Korah that were established under David's kingship. You know, there's another one from Asaph who also served under David. So a number of the the books that Israel would sing all the way up until Jesus' times were written by this guy. That's his legacy. You know, he has the throne of David, but there's also the songs of David. And we get the first one here. So we'll start working through it. First of all, in verse 19, you see how the mighty has fallen. You notice that that's also in verse 25. It's also in verse 27. It's kind of the theme of the song or the chorus. So that's the refrain that comes. Me being type A, I would want the refrain right in the, like at the beginning and at the end and right in the middle. But you'll notice that middle one's not right in the middle of the song. It's like towards the bottom. So we'll get back to that in a second. It does bookend at the beginning and the end. And then verses 19 through 21 are about Saul. Verses 22 and 24 are about Jonathan and the throne of Israel. And then verses 25 and 27 are about Jonathan. So he's got kind of verses at either end about the characters, and then he talks about them both together in the middle of the song. So there's structure here, intention on how he did it. There's no mention of the other two sons. Like David didn't have a high opinion of Saul's other two sons, apparently, um, because he doesn't even write about them. They're not even mentioned, but we know from 1 Samuel that they also died. Uh, But David's focused, I think, on the throne of Israel and the heir to that throne, who is Jonathan. And David sees the kingship itself as anointed and beautiful and mighty, regardless of who Saul was. He sat on a throne that God created. Like, I'm so grateful for this, because if I teach the word, I don't have to be pretty. It's not about me, it's about the word that I'm teaching. And that's true of all of your ministries. It's not about you, it's about the work you're doing for the kingdom. And we give our lives and we pour ourselves out for other people, and we do it for a reason. We do it because our God is good and he poured himself out for us. So we keep going. It's a high honor to be in that kind of position. So when the mighty have fallen, it's more than just death. There's a long, Saul fell a long time ago. It's not just what he did at the end physically that was his his downfall. Um, So we see this phrase coming in. Verse 20, tell it not in Gath. Gath is a Philistine city. Part of what makes the fall of Saul sad to David is that Saul represented God's kingdom on earth. So when he falls, the Philistines celebrate. And they did celebrate. They hung him from a wall. So when the servant of God goes down, that's a sad thing. And we know that. We've seen servants of God go down, and it's usually sin that takes them out. That's really sad. That's not something we celebrate as Christians. It's something we mourn, you know, and we, and we should be upset about that. Verse 21 His shield not being anointed with oil. That's a double, is an entendre the right word, my English people? Is that a double entendre? No? Help me out. Physically, literally, when warriors went into battle, they would oil their shield. This has two purposes. One, it helps that shield because usually the shields were covered with leather. There'd be like a wood or metal base, and then they'd wrap them in a leather. When When you oil the leather, it A, makes things bounce off it a little bit easier, um, but it also makes that, that, she, that leather a little more supple, supple. It'll take blows better than a hard leather would. So they would oil their shields, and, and that goes away fairly quickly historical, but that little detail helps us to set the book of Samuel where we do historically, um, because there's a period where they stop oiling the shields because they don't put leather on them anymore. Um, it's also an image of God's spirit, like his shield's not anointed. And so you have a kind of a double meaning there. Right? There's also this idea that Saul's marching out to battle and he's using the world's weapons and they're not blessed. And that's kind of a tragedy too. So we have these heroes who, um, who do this. So the bow of Jonathan, the sword of Saul, in one way David's saying these guys went down fighting. They weren't weak. They went out. They didn't go out passively hiding in caves like in the time of Judges. They went down with honor. On another, in a spiritual sense, the weapons of the world didn't help them one bit. They went out fighting the way the world fights, and they lost. And they didn't win the battle. I think that's why David doesn't grab the crown right away. Right? He's not going to take the crown the way the world wants to hand it to him. If he's going to take a crown, it's going to be from God's people, not from an Amalekite thief. right? So in verse 23, this is a kind way to remember Saul. like He's remembering them for their good, their blessings. He doesn't point out all of Saul's failings. Like, we get a record of that in Samuel because the priests are writing them all down. But David, we get to see what a blessing he is. He didn't look at people's negative attributes. He saw the best in people. And there's a grace that he's giving here to say, the sins of Saul are as far as the east is from the west. They're not even going to be remembered in song. We're not even going to track them. They're gone in their history. And I just love the way that if David can show that kind of grace and God promises us that kind of grace, isn't that awesome, right? So his people, someone after his heart, does this that easily. Just, they're going to remember the good stuff. Verse 24, we get some indication here uh, that Israel did have some success under Saul. That these ladies got wealth and there was a worldly success to Saul's reign. Um, But that's also the reason the Philistines invaded is they wanted to steal things. So worldly success actually makes you a target in some ways. So that said... Uh, none of these things saved the people of Israel either. Verse 25, brother Jonathan. This is a key thing. This is a verse that it kind of, I hate to have to address it, but if I don't, I'm not being honest. This is a difficult verse for some people because we just, our culture has changed. So in verse 25, we need to note that David's respect for Jonathan was as a brother, right? And they're not related Genetically, they're related because God has brought them together as brothers in Christ. How precious that is is something we should note. The daughters in verse 24 weep for Saul, but when we get to Jonathan, it's almost like the writer of the song David is weeping for Jonathan. Like David didn't weep for Saul, but he's gonna honor Saul. You see the difference? He doesn't have to like Saul, but he's gonna honor him as the king of Israel. But with Jonathan, it's personal, and you can see the the way he writes this is there. He says he was very pleasant. In the Hebrew, that means a delight, agreeable. You ever hang out with somebody and you leave feeling like you're a better person than when you went? That's Jonathan. You go hang out with Jonathan, you leave feeling better about who you are. It, the, to be with him is a pleasant experience. He's a good friend. So he's a brother. He's pleasant to hang with. Jonathan vowed and selflessly supported David throughout David's life. Jonathan actually saved David's life. So we see the interactions that David had with Jonathan, and they're ones of just kind of honor and grace and love. So the word love here in the Hebrew is ahaba. Uh, It's a root word, just like our word love. So when we say, I love you, that can mean 12 different things, right? Depending on who you say it to. It's the same in the Hebrew when you use that form of it. It's an absolute kind of all-encompassing kind of love. When we get to the New Testament, they do it in Greek, and Greeks have very specific words for kinds of love. Phileo love, agape love, um, porneo love. There's different kinds of love in the Greek, but in the Hebrew, there's kind of this all-encompassing word that we have. So it needs to be conditioned. So when I say, I love you to my wife, that means something because of context, right? But if I say, I love you to my wife on the phone, and somebody's listening to me, and they don't know who I'm talking to, I get off the phone and I have to say, that was my wife. Does that make sense? So let's read that again, verse 25. Brother Jonathan, your love. He conditions it. The kind of love David is talking about is one between two people that are brothers in the spirit. And so he brings that condition there. Jeremiah 31.3, the same word uh, for love. Is referred to our love for the Lord God Almighty. The Lord has appeared of old to me, saying, Yea, I have loved you, Ahaba, with an everlasting ahaba, love. Therefore, with loving kindness I've drawn you to me. So it's the kind of love that God has for people. It's a strong spiritual connotation when we read it in the Old Testament. Right? I'm setting all this up because then he says, To me, that was wonderful. That word in the Hebrew is polah, it means marvelous. Where did we see the word marvelous before in the Bible? It's one of my favorite verses. It's when, in Genesis 18, 14, when Sarah and Abraham are told they're going to have a kid, and they say, is there anything too hard for our Lord? Is there anything too marvelous, pull off for our Lord? Is there anything more marvelous than a brother that is tighter than anybody else on the earth? To have that kind of friend, that kind of brotherhood with somebody, that's amazing is anything too Paula for the Lord. The love of Jonathan was wonderful. It was marvelous. There's not much that compares to it. Leviticus 27.2 is another use of Paulah, just so we get the context of how they use this word. Speak unto the children of Israel and say to them, when a man shall make a singular vow, Paula is the word that gets used. When a man makes a singular marvelous, the person shall be for the Lord by thy estimation. It's a way in which we commit ourselves to other people. So it's interchangeable with those kinds of things. So the fact that we see Jonathan making vows to David, these kind of lifetime vows, I'm with you forever, I got your back, you're a brother to me, that's all by vow, it's not by blood. And that's, I mean, really that's a mirror of our relationship with Christ. It's all by vow, it's not by blood but we commit and we make those commitments and it's marvelous before the Lord when those things happen. And that's, I think David's being, he's a songwriter. He picks every one of these words very carefully, right? And so he's using these words that there's a brotherly love that's wonderful and that's what Jonathan was. And he just lost that. That's what we're mourning when we read this. So Jonathan's more than just a brother. He made vows to David. They were wonderful and marvelous vows and God inspired the whole thing. This was a God friendship. So here's an heir to the throne that was willing to let David take that throne. That's the kind of friendship that doesn't come around every day. Your absolute love was a marvel to me is another way to read that in the Hebrew. Uh, You can read 1 Samuel 14, 18 through 24, and you can see the friendship of David and, and Jonathan. Most of you have been here as we've read through those chapters. Their friendship was amazing. And then it brings in this phrase which trips people up today. It surpasses the love of a woman. Now, we know David's relationships with his wives were not like Sarah and Abraham, right? Two become one flesh. David's more like, oh, she's really pretty, I think I'll marry her, right? Or she's a political connection to Saul, so I think I'll marry her. And at this point, he has two wives, so clearly this guy doesn't have the kind of wife that I do. Like, he doesn't get it, and he doesn't understand that a marriage can also be a friendship that lasts a whole life that looks a lot like what he's describing with Jonathan. The way God intended marriage, right? It should be that kind of friendship. But he's talking specifically about the physical love that you have with, your, with, with a woman or with a, it doesn't even say a wife, it just says with a woman. So he's saying like, to have a friend, a brother like Jonathan, that's so, it's, it, I'm, he specifically is saying this isn't just about sexual attraction. It's about a lot more than that. And I think that's because he's conditioning the word love which is a primary root word. He's trying to explain, it's, that's not what I'm talking about. But people get all tripped up on that. And I think it's because in our world today, we've got a lot of people that can't see past the sexual because they have no spiritual. So all they can read into that is that there might be some sort of weird thing between David and Jonathan. And I think David's going out of his way to say, that's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about a brotherhood that's, a, that's greater than that kind of thing. It goes beyond it. What kind of love is the greatest form of love in the Bible. And we need to hear this from the Bible, not from the world. Greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. It's exactly what Jonathan did for David right up until the day he died. It's exactly what Jonathan did for his dad, Saul. They were united even to the end. John's bow, Saul's sword, side by side, they go down together because Jonathan's loyal as heck. That's the greatest form of love, and it's what David wants to honor here as we do things. So this is this line is, I hopefully something that for you at least is a blessing, not some sort of tripping point in the Word of God. Um, make no mistake about it. David's respect and honor honoring of Jonathan here is a rare and a marvelous gift in the Bible, and I think that's partially why the enemy likes to attack it. Brotherhood or sisterhood in the family of Christ, there's nothing better. Like you can save up friendships in the body of Christ and your body of worth is so much greater than if you make millions, right? I'd much rather have friendships. What David really respected about Jonathan is that he stuck it out with Saul. I think David even respected him for sticking out and, and trying to be there with his dad even up until the last battle. So that takes a kind of trust to give up your life for somebody that you trust that God's plan is, goes beyond your own life. I think every missionary that goes out into the field has to wrestle with this idea. What if I die out in the field? What if something happens? And at some point, people have to decide that my life given to the Lord is the only life I have to give, and it's what I want to give. It's the only reasonable gift. So David values this loyalty. We'll see that in his kingship. In fact, loyalty is what David's going to build his kingship on, relationships. How the mighty have fallen, verse 27, and the weapons of war are perished. There's kind of that that last verse is like a sigh at the end. It's a mourning song, right? So it just, it ends that refrain, and the weapons of war are perished. War did not make Israel happen. So as the, Israel tries to make their new kingship, and they put Saul at the head of it, like battling and and war and strife didn't make the kingdom happen. At the end of the day, that's not how Israel's built. Oddly enough, in the history of humanity, that is how all kingdoms are built except for Israel. They're unique in that attribute. Um, and they do win their battles here and there, but th- it's there. Okay, here's the other thing. This song does have some chiastic form. You know I nerd out about that stuff. So if you want to start drawing little connections with your pencil, Verse 19 and 27 both have how the mighty have fallen. That should cue you off. Then verse 20 and 26. 20 talks about the praises of women. 26 talks about the praises of friendship. In verse 21 and 25, 21 talks about the mighty being cast away or fallen. And frankly, 25 talks about the the mighty have fallen too. It's just phrased different in verse 21. So there's kind of, you could argue, four of those. Verse 22 and 24 one at 22 is that they fought hard. 24 is that they governed well. So they did both aspects of their leadership well. And then in the middle of the, the song is verse 23. Um, this idea of lovely, pleasant, swift, strong. And in the middle of those is that they were not divided. These two, these two guys stuck together. And that's kind of their homage. So that middle piece, they were not divided, is probably what goes on the when you roll up the scroll. That's what is in the middle when you open it up. They were not divided. And the song rolls out from there on either side. So chiastic form. 2 Samuel chapter 2. It happened after this that David inquired of the Lord. (laughs) He just got a crown handed to him, and instead of taking it, he turns to the Lord. Do you want me to take this crown or not? Um, So this is a feature of David as he's walking well with the Lord as he goes to the Lord with things. Saying, shall I go up to any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, go up. And David said, where shall I go? And he said, to Hebron. Wouldn't it be nice if we just could talk to God like that and we got those kinds of answers? Um, That's my initial thought on that. My other thought on that is we have seen through the last couple chapters David reviving and recommitting himself to the Lord. Here's the thing. If you commit yourself to the Lord, you do get answers quicker from the Lord veteran mature believers will tell you this. The more you are just faithfully in prayer, in the word, in fellowship with other believers, then when you pray, read the word, and have fellowship, you get these kinds of answers. Like, it just gets clearer the more you're consistent with what God's asked you to do. The less we do those things, the more foggy messages from the Lord get. So the clarity from the Lord has a lot to do with how much time we spend with him. So David's training has built up to this kind of responsiveness from the Lord. He was exiled. He dwelt in caves. He had years of relying on the Lord when he was in danger. He had some backsliding. He did some raiding. What hardships do you want to go through to get this kind of clarity from the Lord? So that's kind of like, okay, Lord, maybe I'll take it a little less clear. Because David had to go through years of hardship. And at that point, here's the other thing is he's coming back from kind of reuniting with the Lord. You'd think the Lord might want to like torture him a little bit. Like, maybe I'm not going to give you an answer right away, David. Maybe you need to just sit on this one for a little bit. But the Lord doesn't hold grudges. He's bigger than that, clearly. And he gives David am- answers immediately. Um, David, at this point, is in Ziklag. I think that when David asked these questions, if the Lord said to wait, David would have just waited. But the Lord didn't make him wait. He gave him answers right away. Um, so the Lord says to him what to do. Likely, they would have used the Urim and the Thummim for this. Remember, he had a priest with them. Um, but the Bible doesn't actually say that here. It just it kind of says he asks questions and God answers. So it doesn't tell us the method by which this happened, but we've seen throughout the Old Testament there's direct communication from God, there's messengers from God, there's the Urim and the Thummim, there's actual prayer, um, there's ways in which uh, people have tested God, Gideon with his, his, his wool being laid out. Um, but in this case, it sounds more like a conversation. Um, Hebron is about 20 miles south of Jerusalem. Uh, which would be quite a trip from Ziklag. It's a significant location, just as a reminder. Hebron is where all the patriarchs are buried. They're actually still buried there. There's a place called the Tomb of the Patriarchs, which is recognized by the Muslim world and the Christian world and the Jewish world as the burial sites of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, So that's the only land that Abraham ever purchased. So God starts him at the same spot he started Abraham. I just thought that was a cool connection. Verse 2, so David went up there and his two wives also, Ahinoam the Jezreelitess and Abigail the widow of Nabal the Carmelite. And David brought up the men who were with him, every man with his household, so they dwelt in the cities of Hebron. Essentially this is a mass migration. They're just leaving Ziklag and taking everything with them. Um, And no conflict, no issues. Just when God says to go, it seems to be the path is clear. Verse 4, then the men of Judah came. And there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. This is interesting. So one of the tribes immediately shows up to David and honors him as their king. And it's king over the house of Judah. Notice that David progressively has first taken control of himself. Then he took control of his family. Then he started leading his men again. Then he started to lead or rule over his house in Ziklag. And now he's leading over the tribe of Judah. So you see the rise of David is consistent, but that starts with him getting control over himself. God's anointing here is all over this. Um, This is the second anointing. He was anointed by God, which was kind of a personal thing. And then when Judah anoints him, that's kind of a a second anointing. And he's going to have a third anointing when they make him king over all of Israel. So he'll be anointed three times you'd say, why do you need three anointings? And the reason for that is an anointing is simply a ceremony. right? It has symbolic effect, but it doesn't have like, you can anoint somebody, but that's simply an image of, of, or of committing them or, or praying over them and the spirit being on them as they go into a position. Uh, so this is his second anointing. David's first order of business then as king is to take care of the burial of the last king. And in and, and, and making this choice, we, there's, there's an implied question, uh, and it says, and they told David. So there's an implied question here, and the question is, uh, is, is, is Saul buried properly? Has he had an honorable burial? Have we taken care of that business? So the answer he gets for that presumed question is, the men of Jabeth, Gilead were the ones who buried Saul So David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh Gilead, and he said to them, You are blessed to the Lord, for you have shown this kindness kindness to your Lord Saul, and have buried him. And now may the Lord show kindness and truth to you, and I also will repay you this kindness, because you've done this thing. Now therefore let your hands be strengthened, and be valiant, for your master Saul is dead, and also the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. All right, that's an interesting tag at the end. Because Jabesh Gilead is not in the house of Judah. They're on the other side. So he's just letting them know, like, I'm, I'm over here now. I like that he follows up and he honors those that were loyal to Saul. 1 Samuel 31, these people were the ones that took Saul down from the wall, and they went and they, they took care of his body properly. And the fact that that business is taken care of, and David understands, even loyalty to your enemy, I think David gets loyalty is loyalty. And that Jabeth Gilead, they risked their lives to do this. Because now the Philistines are after him. But also the people of Israel are, might be after him too because they just honored the king that just went down that was an enemy of David. So he presumably they put themselves in a spot where if David becomes king, he doesn't like him. And if the Philistines find out who took their trophies, they don't like him. So he put himself in kind of a double jeopardy position, but they did it because they were loyal to Saul. And I think David understands that that virtue, that quality of loyalty is a big deal. And so he wants to let him know, you're not in trouble with me at all. In fact, I want to honor you and give you gifts because you did the right thing. And I think this is just grace because their loyalty to Saul, you could perceive that as then their enemies of David because Saul made himself an enemy of David. So initially, the Jabesh Gilead people will join with Abner because there's a civil war coming, and they're going to join on the side against David. So the fact that David kind of shows them this honor is kind of regardless of what happens next, this isn't about that. This is about doing the right thing. And he shows his enemy, Jabesh Gilead, in this coming civil war, that they did the right thing. And I just think that's classy. Classy as heck. And you don't see that a lot in in these ancient histories. Um, But he did the right thing. He did the truth that was there. And and those deeds, uh, he's letting them know that they've been seen and they've been recognized and that they're honored men because of it. So as he does eventually become the king over all of Israel, Jabesh Gilead is that much more ready to serve him as king because he shows grace even when they're his enemies. He who does the truth comes to light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they've been done in God, John 3.21. You're blessed of the Lord, he puts God right out in front when he's talking to him. This is about God, it's not about me and you. You did the right thing before God. Be strengthened, Uh, it's a... (laughs) David's encouragement here to these people, be strengthened, is because he knows that they're the target of the Philistines. They're going to have some fights ahead of them. And Jabesh Gilead's going to have raids from the Philistines. They're going to have troubles. When he says, the house of Judah has anointed me king, I just think it's interesting how God builds leadership. He does it from the family, then the tribes, then he does it third with the judges, and then he has a high priesthood that works alongside the judges. I just think it's really interesting how God builds a nation. He doesn't do it from the top down. He does it from the family up. Um, Same is true. When the family starts to break down in a nation, the nation starts to break down. But when the family is strong, the nation becomes strong. So here David is is showing that not only does he know how to rule himself, but he knows how to show grace to those people who honored someone who attacked him his entire life. That said, Jabesh Gilead's going to get another king in verse 8. Verse 8, but Abner... So all that nice, uh, we're all done with Saul's funeral. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. Uh, now, the fact that Ishbosheth wasn't really going to battle with Saul and the other three sons is likely because he's too young, or he would have been at that battle. So Abner's taking a kid and propping him up as a king, probably because Abner's pretty much going to be the strings behind the throne. And that's how this kind of gets, how this plays out to some degree. And he made him king over Gilead, over the Asherites, over Jezreel, the people that we just talked about, over Ephraim, over Benjamin, and over all Israel. Abner took; he brought clearly the verbs here. Abner's in control. So Abner, the head of the army, takes over. Um, we know he's head of the army. First Samuel fourteen fifty, and this verse. He's the commander of the army. We know from 1 Samuel 14 that he was Saul's uncle. So he, had, he was related to Saul. So if Saul goes down, Abner's probably not going to do well in David's kingdom. And in the ancient world, you think you're going to get killed. He, do, he doesn't know that David's not that kind of guy. In fact, it's probably, oh, well, yeah, okay, Abner does know that David doesn't think highly of him because remember Abner called him out and said, why didn't you guard Saul? What kind of general are you? You didn't take care of the security. Abner knows he doesn't have like a job waiting for him over in David's kingdom. So he's going to fight for his own kingdom. So he has every reason to oppose David, even though I really don't think that's how David would have handled him. But um, it also reveals that Abner was probably one of the people feeding things into Saul's ear throughout his kingship. Like David, he's out to get you. Like this is probably that. Uh, Ishbosheth isn't really like you got to know the, the names here. First uh, Chronicles nine thirty nine. He's called Eshbal, the fourth son of Saul. So he gets called Ishbosheth here, but in other references to him in the genealogies, he's called Eshbaal or the son of Baal. So he's not a, a Yahweh worshiping guy, right? So the, the country of, of Israel is going to become completely uh, pagan under him as a king. Mahanaim in, in Genesis. Uh, 32.2, this is where Jacob sees the hosts of God. It's a sacred spot for the Israelites, so he takes them there to make them the king. Um, And he makes them king over these different areas, Gilead and these things, um, really retaking these different towns from the Philistines. So we get a sense that Abner and Ishbosheth had some success because as it lists off these locations, these are the locations that the Philistines would have conquered in that last battle where Saul died. So they're moving the Philistines back with each of these locations that they list. In other words, they, they, they're having some success here. Jezreel is a big deal. They mention that because that's the farmland. That's the breadbasket of Egypt. Ephraim gets mentioned because that's the largest tribe in Israel. So Judah is kind of about half of the territory. But when they get Ephraim, they get about half the people of Israel are now following Ishbosheth. Um, and then it says all Israel, which is, you know, all Israel... We get a sense of the split kingdom even before they're united, that there's Judah and then there's Israel. And that's how the wording gets used here. Ishbosheth, Saul's son in verse 10, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel. That throws out the idea that he's a kid, right? So I'm saying he's not on the battlefield because he's likely a kid. But then we see in verse 10, they go out of their way to say, Sean, don't teach that because this guy's 40 years old. Why wasn't he at the battle? Who is this guy? And then you got to think, okay, there's reasons why someone wouldn't go to war when you're 40, but it's not because you're too old, and it's clearly not because he's too young. But he begins to rule over Israel. He only reigns for two years. How come he only reigned for two years? So, those are kinds of questions we have about Ishbosheth. The Bible doesn't tell us the answer to that, um, but we start to, you know, we get that detail because there's, it should be a huge contrast. We just read about a major battle with all of Saul's sons there. And Ishbo 40 years old and he's not at the battle. He's not a commander. So what kind of character do we have here? And why is Abner thinking he can just control this guy? Only the house of Judah followed David. So there's a split in the kingdom. And verse 11, at that time, David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah. Uh, was seven years and six months. So David's just going to be patient. He's going to take what God's given him. Judah has said, we'll follow you as our king. David's not attacking Israel. He just accepts where God's put him. Even though God said he'll be king over all Israel, he's not going to take that crown in that kind of way. So to stand for the throne of David is to get the disapproval of the world. And, And that should be expected. It's no different with the son of David who sits on the throne of David. He doesn't force himself on any of these other tribes. And Jesus never forces himself on anybody. God's a gentleman. You come into the kingdom of God by voluntary addition, and David's like that way too. Judah's choosing to follow him, and these other tribes have chosen not to, and that should to be to somewhat expected, right? There's an eleven to or eleven to one ratio here, so seven years and six months, Judah just becomes his home. So two years he's leading in, in Judah, uh, the the Ishbosheth is only going to reign for two years then those other five and a half years means David was reigning all of Israel from Hebron. So that's where the throne is initially. He's going to move it to a different city, but we don't know that city's name yet. Verse 12, Now Abner the son of Ner and the servants of Ishbosheth the son of Saul, went out from Mahanaim to Gibeon. That means they're attacking. So they're moving towards uh, Judah. That's a long trip for that army. As Abner is conquering all these territories in the north, he's heading towards Judah when he comes down towards Gibeon. So there's that word went out in the Hebrew is a military word for campaigns that go out to battle. So he goes out to battle first, and then in verse 13, Joab the son of Jeruah, and the servants of David went out and met them by the pool, of Gibeon. So they sat down one on one side of the pool and on the other, other side of the pool. This is an interesting thing. Abner, the head of Saul's armies, relative to Saul. And then on the other side is this new character. It's the first time we've heard the name Joab. It's not going to be the last time. He's going to be the head of David's armies. And he's also a relative of David. So the son of Jeruiah, we should know that um, that makes him David's nephew. But remember, David was the youngest of a lot. So, and and this and Zeruiah was a, his sister. So the fact that he's the son of David's sister and David's sister was much older than he was, it's likely that Joab was older than David. So he's, in both cases, you got Abner and Joab, kind of the uncles of the kings that are then leading the armies for their nephews. And they're sitting opposite the pool, eye to eye, staring each other down, who's tougher. You got Joab, the battle-hardened Amalekite killer, and you've got Abner on the other side, the battle-hardened David chaser. You know, you got these two guys that have for years have been leading armies. They're definitely going to go the way of war if they can. And they do. Verse 14. Then Abner said to Joab, let the young men fight. Let the young men now arise and compete before us. And Joab said, let them arise. You've got these two battle-hardened, grizzly guys going Let's get the young people to do the fighting. (laughs) Like, we're tired. So they do. In some ways, you could see this where you'd send out your champion, like with Goliath and David, and whoever wins, wins the battle, and then nobody else has to die. The problem is they tried that with David and Goliath, and it didn't work. They still had a bunch of people die. So this whole champion idea is nice in theory, but it doesn't always work, because usually if you're at war, you're at work, because you want to eliminate the other people group from the planet. So having champions do it is there. So at this point, it's just mere entertainment. Notice neither Joab or Abner go to the Lord and consult them. Should we have a battle to the death? And the Lord then tells them one way or the other. And I think the Lord would have said, no, don't have a battle to the death. Well, This isn't a a game. They're not there to entertain you. Notice the number they pick is 12. 12 champions on both sides. That's the number of governance or representation. 12 tribes of Judah, 12 disciples. So they arose and they went over by number twelve from Benjamin, followers of Ishbosheth and the son of Saul, and twelve from the servants of David, and each one grasped at his opponent by the head and thrust his sword in his opponent's side, and they fell down together. This is horrible. Therefore, that place was called the field of sharp swords, which is in Gibeon. So, going in, this is like the beginning of Greco- Greco-Roman wrestling, where you, you grab the other person's head and see who's stronger and you kind of try to jerk the one person to the side, only instead of going in bare they've got a sword in the other hand. This also says they're going in for guts and battle. These warriors went in with shields. Remember Saul's shield didn't get oiled? So to go in to fight without your shield means they're going in for a death match. That's all this is. It's just wanton killing. No shields, nothing, and then they all die together. So This isn't historically very productive at all, because both armies are going to still fight. This honestly was just, let's take my 12 toughest against your 12 toughest. And they both think this is a great idea. Uh, And then verse 17 is kind of a separate idea. There was a very fierce battle that day, and Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. That's not that these, I don't even know why they include this story with the 12. be one of my questions when I get to heaven. Why did you have the battle of the 24 people in the Bible? And what's that there for? Other than to show us something about the character of Joab and something about the character of Abner. These guys are men of war and they like to watch people die. And that's it. I like to think that maybe Joab sent his 12 weakest or something like that, but none of that makes any sense. The reality is they went in and as they grabbed each other's heads with one hand, they had swords in the other and everybody just died and all 24 of them are dead. It was just pointless carnage. The battle being fierce has something to do with it being a family battle. Family battles are the worst. Every lawyer will tell you the worst cases are divorce cases. Like, it gets vicious when there's a family member involved. The Civil War was one of the the highest death rate per soldier wars that America's ever had. It gets vicious when it's civil. One instance from the battle then gets shared in verse 18. We see this glimpse of what happened during this fierce battle Now the three sons of Zeruiah, 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 you can try to pronounce that later in your spare time, were there, Joab and Abishai and Ashael. So we see three brothers. Joab's one of them. Ashael was as fleet of foot as a wild gazelle. Important detail, he's fast. So Ashael pursued Abner, and in going, he did not turn to the right hand or to the left from following Abner. He's got like Terminator, and it's really important. He's going full speed at him. And Abner looked behind him and said, are you Ashael? And he answered, I am, coming full speed at him. And Abner said to him, turn aside to your right or your left and lay hold on one of the young men and take the, his armor for yourself. But Ashael would not turn aside from following him, Abner. It's like, buddy, I'm, go, I'm not going for armor. I'm going for you to go down. So he's trying to claim, you ever see like, this part of just like young men trying to make their way in the world. Right, and in the battlefield, this is part of how you do it. If you're the guy that drops the other general, that's a huge honor for that soldier. So this is kind of younger guy, and Abner's trying to, you know, say, hey, look, don't do this because you're a young punk. I'm going to waste you. Like I'm a better fighter than you. Don't do this. But I think here's the other thing. So Abner again said to Ashiel, turn aside from following me, and we get to see why Abner doesn't want to fight him. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I face your brother Joab? However, he refused to turn aside. Abner knows that this is Joab's little brother, right? This is like if you want to kill Achilles' son, you can do that, but then you got Achilles coming after you, right? It's the same kind of situation. If he kills, uh, if he kills uh, Ashael, then Joab's got a blood feud with Abner and his duty under the law is to avenge that blood that got spilled. So Abner's trying to avoid that kind of bloodshed. But it doesn't work. He, he refuses to turn aside because he's like, I don't, I'm, not gonna, I'm not going after the armor, and I'm not going to stop because I'm scared of you. So, but Abner is right here. This is going to be an issue, and, and it will be a blood feud. Um, but he's telling him to back off. Uh, There's no honor here for you. Um, Therefore, Abner struck him in the stomach with the blunt end of his spear so that the spear came out his back. This is a really graphic detail. And then he fell down there and died on the spot. So, the downside of being fast as a gazelle is you are then Abner uses his speed against him. He's a good fighter. He, you, he overcommitted. So, Abner does that. The fact that he uses the blunt end of the spear is largely because he's probably trying to stop him, but he's coming at him so fast and so hard, it, it stopped him, but it went right through him. The other thing is, if he's got the spear turned around, that means the sharp end is probably in the ground. So, he sets up this kind of dull pull thing to stop him or back him off Um, strategically Abner's not trying to do it but it happens and he's responsible for it so that so that it was so it was that as many that came to the place where Ashahel fell down and died stood still they would kind of stop and honor him this is the spot where he died he was so committed to avenge this situation and stop it that he killed himself on the blunt end of a spear Joab and Abishai, the other brother, also pursued Abner. So they're all going after Abner, and the first one to there is the one that's as fast as a gazelle. But the other two brothers are still coming. And the sun was going down when they came to the hill of Amma, which is before Gia, on the road to the wilderness of Gibeon. In other words, the tribe of Judah has won this battle. They've pushed him back. Now the children of Benjamin gathered together behind Abner and became a unit And they took their stand at the top of a hill. Again, a great strategic move. Get the the higher ground. Then Abner called to Joab and said, Shall the sword devour forever? He's talking about blood feuds. If I kill you, your family's coming after me because we're both Israelites. If you kill me, my family's coming after you because when you have killing within the tribe of Israel, we have an obligation. It's interesting which laws of God they choose to follow and which ones they choose to totally ignore. But seemingly the blood avenger thing caught the imagination of the warriors. And do you not know that it will be bitter in the latter end? This is just going to end bad for everybody. How long will it be until you tell the people to return from pursuing their brothers? Are you ever going to stop coming after us? One thing Joab could say is, you attacked us. You phoned me for this conversation. So if you don't like the result of it, that's kind of your problem. But here's what happens. Joab said, as God lives, unless you had spoken, surely then by morning all the people would have given up pursuing their brethren, their brothers. So Joab blew a trumpet and all the people stood still and did not pursue Israel anymore, nor did they fight anymore. Then Abner and all his men went on all that night through the plain and crossed over the Jordan and went through all Bithron and they came to Mahanaim, they went back home. And I love that you see the influence of David because when Joab speaks... He puts the Lord out in front. Boy, as God lives, if you didn't say something, we would have kept coming forever. We didn't know you didn't want to fight because remember you attacked us. So if you don't want to fight, we're not going to fight and that's Israel's way of doing war. If we're not going to battle then and you want out of the battle, you got out. We don't have to fight if you don't want to. So they stop killing. I think that shows restraint that we just don't see in ancient history. So they don't finish the deal. Um, Some people read this passage to give you other commentary on this. Some people read this passage and say if Joab had finished the deal, they wouldn't have civil war that goes on for a very long time. That this was the chance that he had to just end it, and he didn't end it. I'm hesitant to go that way because I just don't see that the Bible gives us that commentary. Like I think to have mercy, regardless of maybe that means more struggle, maybe that's a sacrifice we make, but to choose to not fight is sometimes the the merciful path is more work, and it does mean struggle. And it does mean we don't get that killing blow all the time in our arguments. Sometimes to just relent, it works. So Joab returned from pursuing Abner, and when he would gathered all the people together, they were missing of David's servants, 19 men, and Ashahel. Remember, 12 of those 19 were in the, the death battle of the swords. So really, they only lost eight people. So you're thinking, how many people are even in these battles? And then verse 31, but the servants of David had struck down of Benjamin and Abner's men 360 who had died. So, <laughs> like, that's an, a one-man to 18-man ratio death rate. So we should learn a couple things for that. First of all, you could say, oh, that's just a flat-out miracle that the tribe of Judah just had that of a lopsided of a victory. But we know now why Abner ran, is they were absolutely getting slaughtered on the battlefield. And as a man of war, Abner knows what that looks like. Um, And Abner could see something's just not working here. It also tells you that chasing David through the wilderness and never having combat, they had a veteran army that was good at marching, but they weren't good at actually doing fighting. Where David's men were raiding amicalites and other enemies of God for years, they were actually good at fighting, and they knew how to handle themselves with their weapons. So a person who's trained as a soldier and knows how to fight versus somebody who just thinks they know how to fight, It's not even close. Like, go to any martial arts situation and take on the sensei just for fun. Is sensei the right word? The master of the martial art? They will own you in seconds, and I don't care how big they are. It's just a matter of knowing how to handle yourself. Spiritually speaking, if we go out to battle and we don't know the word of God, and we don't know how to pray, and we don't have fellowship with other believers, we're going out to battle not being ready for war. And we're going out into spiritual situations, and we're gonna get owned. So if we spend years learning the word, fellowshipping with the saints, talking about our Lord together, sharing our stories of, of spiritual stuff that's going on in our lives, that's what prepares us to be the loving servants of God in a very different kind of war, a war for people's hearts and souls. So I, this image just of the 18 to one ratio, to me that convicts me, I gotta just be ready for, I've gotta be in it. I gotta be in those skirmishes with people. And, and if that's the case and, And sometimes that goes God's way, and sometimes it doesn't. It's God's battle. It's not mine. But it's not that we go in thinking like combat warriors all the time. But there is an idea that we understand that there is a spiritual conflict. The souls of humanity are at stake. And God's put us on the field to bring those people into the harvest and gather up the people that are going to be in the kingdom of heaven. So just a thought. 32. Then they took up Ashael and buried him in his father's tomb, which was in Bethlehem. There's that little city of like 2,000 people that just got mentioned again in the Old Testament. It just keeps popping up all through the Old Testament. This little sheep herding city of Bethlehem, right? And Joab and his men went all night and they came to Hebron at daybreak. And now there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. So that whole story sets up this blood feud, this battle, this civil war. And David grew stronger and stronger and the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. The battle's kind of one way, and and it it doesn't give us a lot of stories as to that battle. We don't get a lot of history there, in large part because the Bible doesn't, the writer of this, that wasn't the point. The point was that David kept growing in strength. In battles like this, that were 18 to 1 ratios, you know, that's going to whittle down an army pretty quick with every skirmish. So if Joab had finished it, the war might not be as long. Um, But at the same token, Joab Joab followed the law because David trained him to do that. And he trained him to stop fighting when the other person waved the white flag. So we historically get kind of the first instance of someone crying uncle, and then the uncle backs off. Y'all get that? You got two uncles, it's the battle of the uncles, and one of them cries uncle. All right, just wanted to say this is where, where these phrases come from. And you have this situation where this happens for the first time in history. Somebody just says uncle and uncle goes home. So there isn't, uh, isn't going to be peace for David. You'd think he's gotten right with the Lord. He's excited about his faith. He's going to the priest. He's seeking the Lord's counsel on what to do. But that doesn't mean that he's going to have a, a, a unicorns and rainbows the rest of his life. It actually means David's going to have strife and, and these kinds of battles for the kingdom. And the same is true with us when we accept David's, the son of, the, the person who sits on David's throne is Jesus. And when we bring Jesus into our life, there's that moment of, ah, oh, things are going right. This is great. I'm in the Word. I'm doing it. And then God just puts those tests in our life. He gives us those things that we have to live through and, and deal with. And that's the struggle. And that, that's the situation that we're here for because He calls us out to be His servants. And that's kind of what that means. It's funny how. <laughs> The white flag of peace gets honored when the enemies of God wave it. But they, you, we haven't seen a lot of occasions where the children of God wave the white flag and the enemies are, show that kind of mercy. So I just like the fact that Joab said, I'm not going to keep killing. And, and for me, that's kind of a blessing. In our own lives, we have that too. We accept Christ and, and there's a civil war that starts to happen. A battle of the flesh versus a battle of the spirit. And if you look at the book of Samuel, Saul's reign was a reign of the flesh and David's reign is going to be a reign of the spirit for most of his kingship. Um, when we relent at getting things like sin out of our life, like it's going to come back and bite us, and it's going to be this long-pitched battle back and forth. So people get saved, and, and a lot of times the enthusiasm of salvation is a joy for all of us, but there's also then you got a civil war in your heart when that happens. you got to start dealing with yourself and killing the sinful man and putting on the the new person in Christ that God's made in you. So David grows stronger and stronger, and the house of Saul grows weaker and weaker. That should be how it is for every believer. We get saved, and these struggles happen, and the spirit that God's put in us gets stronger and stronger, and the spirit that wants to go after sin just gets weaker and weaker. And that's the story of the world. Really, that's the story of God's impact on the planet Earth, is as time passes, as much as the world wants to tell us Christianity is shrinking... Numerically, it's not shrinking. It has just consistently kept growing since Jesus rose from the dead. It might be shrinking here in Minnesota, but globally, it's not. It's exploding all over the earth. And Satan loves to discourage his saints, but that's just not the grand picture of history. God's kingdom gets stronger and stronger, and the world's kingdom gets weaker and weaker. It's why they, get, it's why they thrash about, and they get so angry with us Christians, is that they're losing the battle. Because the one that's in us is stronger than the one that's in the world. And I hope that's encouraging. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how we can see um, your gospel, even in the Old Testament. We thank you for these histories that were meticulously written down and kept by the priests. We thank you for the, each generation of scribes that wrote these things down with care and with carefulness. Uh, Lord, we love what we see in the character of David. We love how he honors his enemies. And he honors his friends even more. And Lord, we thank you for Jonathan. What a good friend he was. Uh, We can't wait to meet him um, at the feast. Lord, we can't wait to meet him in heaven. And and we just thank you. Lord, as we go out today and we leave Bible study tonight, we leave Sabbath and we go out into the mission field tomorrow, Lord, give each person in this room courage and boldness. May we glorify you above all. And Lord, may we just invite people to the wedding feast and, and invite them to come into your kingdom and offer that invitation. Lord, as each one of us is saved, there is a struggle between the flesh and between the spirit. There's who you made us to be and and, and who our flesh wants to be. And Lord, I just pray for each person in here that your spirit grows stronger and stronger and the self gets weaker and weaker. And as we go through life, our strength is in you, our hope is in you, and you're our strong tower, Lord, that we have our faith in you and we um, rely on you for our daily bread. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this night. Lord, may your Holy Spirit be with us as we pray and as we fellowship. May you just fill this room tonight in Jesus' name.